day to the book of Acts, the 21st chapter. And we're going to kind of just glean for a few moments here today. I'm going to go ahead and share with you the, the subject matter that I'm going to talk about. And that is, I'm going, to just, I'm going to share, and probably only one person in the room that knows my personal conflict associated with preaching today, and that is my son Austin, that he and I spent a lot of time yesterday deer hunting, and I shared with him my internal turmoil uh, in the context of preaching today. It is because it's difficult to separate emotions that have been related to this week's political upheaval across our great land. And it's difficult to separate that from spiritual principles and perspectives. And even this past Wednesday night, had the privileged opportunity to lead just dialogue, open discussion. It was for any person. All were welcome to participate. It was detouring, detouring from my lessons that I teach on Wednesday night. But it was just because, in the words of the Apostle Paul, which... He said in Acts 26, these things were not done in a corner. These things, these events, these, uh, everything that is happening, the media, everything is propagated on us almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. And oddly enough, the internal challenge that pastors have is that then so someone comes to church, and we had two visitors on, on Wednesday night which oftentimes visitors don't usually come for the first time on a Wednesday night service. And, um, and they'll hear, hear, you know, I thought to myself, maybe they came to church to escape all those things. <laughs> and then here we are talking about these things. But again, whether or not we choose to talk about them or not in the four walls of this building, they affect every one of us. It's the dialogue of many of our dinner tables. It's the dialogue of husbands and wives as they're driving down the road. It's uh, around the. Uh, it's it's the dialogue of the office, oftentimes, and and, and so it would. It, it, even though I feel an inner tension that is related to it, I would feel a greater um, sorrow if I remain silent. If I if if the the voice of the church was totally muted, which is the desire of many. But this is not necessarily a political sermon today because what this is is we're going to talk about religion and politics. Do y'all feel that? It's a good thing we already got your offering taken up, Brother John. We're going to glean through the book of Acts, uh, not the entire book of Acts, but a couple of chapters, gleaning very carefully and quickly from the Apostle Paul when he's arrived at Jerusalem knowing that the prophetical word of God through the prophets was that when he arrived at Jerusalem, it would be tumultuous and it would, in, it would end with him uh, in imprisonment. And that's, that story is picked up in the 27th verse. And it's, uh, let, me, let me just pick it up right here. So when the seven days were almost ended, this was, a, this was a fast that Paul had entered into at the urging of James, the apostle, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And James knew that there were many in Judaism that believed that Paul, in his preaching, was preaching that the Gentile or that the Jewish Christians did not have to participate in the practices of the Mosaic law. And so he said, Paul, in order to silence your critics, why don't you enter into a fast, shave your head, 
and then at the end of seven days, go into the temple and offer offering there and show that, hey, I'm a, I'm a Jewish believer, but I still believe in the Mosaic Law. Because even up until that time, Jewish believers were still sacrificing in the temple. So Paul agreed to, but it seemed like that the God of all grace intercepted the apostle of grace before he could offer a sacrifice in the temple because while he was there, uh, someone saw him and recognized him. And, he, and then they began to accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple because Timothy was with him. But Timothy was the son of a Jew and of a Gentile, of a mixed marriage. And he was also circumcised. So he actually had the right to be in the temple, but Paul is falsely accused. And that's kind of the context here. Let's read this. The seven days were almost ended. The Jews, when they saw him in the temple, and I'm going to read very quickly, stirred up all the people and they laid hands on him. And they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that preaches everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And he has brought Greeks into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen him before in another city, uh, seen in the city Tropanes. I said Timothy, I'm sorry, and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved. The people ran together, and they took Paul. They drew him out of the temple, and they shut the doors. They shut the doors to the church house. And as they were about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately, and this would be to the Roman centurion, took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain, the Roman authorities, and the soldiers, they left the beating of Paul. And when the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done, and some cried one thing and some another. That sounds very familiar. Some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came into the stairs, when he came into the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, saying, Away with him, away with him. And as Paul was led into the castle, he asked an opportunity, Can I speak? And he, and he said, Can't you speak Greek? And this, the captain thought that he was an Egyptian that had caused an uproar previously. And Paul clarified his identity. He said, I am a man which am a Jew. He said, though I'm from Tarsus, not from Jerusalem, a city in Cilicia. What he didn't say is that I'm a Roman citizen. He will say that later. I'm a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And so Paul was given the opportunity to speak unto the people. And so chapter 22 transitions with Paul's great dialogue where he shares his conversion on the Damascus road and how he began to preach this Jesus. And so it's in the, 22, the 22nd verse of the 22nd chapter that in the midst of his preaching, it said they had given him audience unto this word, but when, he had heard, when they heard certain things, they lifted up their voices and they said, away. So the crowd that sat silent to allow him to speak for a little while suddenly uh, turned violent and they lifted up their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth for it is not fit for him to live. And they cried out, they cast off their clothes and they threw dust into the air and the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging. So now in order to get the truth of the situation, the chief captain has decided that he's going to bring the apostle Paul in. And in order to get the truth, he's going to actually scourge him, believing that as he scourged him, he'll tell him the entirety of the story or of his history or the truth of how he arrived at Jerusalem. 
So they're binding the apostle with tongues. And Paul said unto the centurion, he said, is it lawful? So Paul then turns to the man that's putting his hands, you know, binding his hands. And he says, it, it, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And that was news to the soldiers and to the chief captain that Paul, being a Jew, was actually a Roman because he was born in Tarsus. And Tarsus was a free city in the Roman Empire and its citizens uh, if they were freeborn, were born into Roman citizenship. And the chief captain came, uh, or 26th verse, the centurion heard. He went and told the chief captain, and he said, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. The chief captain came and said, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yes. The chief captain said, Well, with a great sum obtained I this freedom. So the chief captain said, I had to purchase my citizenship in the Roman Empire, but Paul said, I was freeborn. I just was born in the right place at the right time, and I gained my citizenship. And so straightway they departed from him when they should have examined him, and the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. And so on the morrow, the next day, he would have known the certainty, wherefore he was accused of the Jews. He loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priest and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them because he shouldn't have been bound by, by the, the, the tongs or the fetters or because uh, uh, he, was a Roman centur- or he was a Roman. And so the centurion is afraid, the chief captain is afraid because he has breached the Roman Empire's laws. And just a few more verses in the 23rd chapter kind of then take the story. So the next day arrives and Paul then, when he is, bra- is brought to, the, to this council, he discovers, look at this, 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 what he discovers, men and brethren. He, so he sees the council. He says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience. So now he stood upon a stairway earlier and gave a defense to which that, de- that defense caused a riot and, devi- and, and, and necessitated uh, intervention by Rome. So now it's not as big of a multitude. It's a smaller multitude. It's the leaders of the council. Paul's given another opportunity to defend himself while the Romans listen and observe to see whether or not they need to go any farther with this incident. And so he, Paul says, I've lived in good conscience before God until this day. And when the high priest Ananias then commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. So while Paul's given his dialogue, his message, uh, somebody just, you know, who's beside him walks over and pops him right in the mouth. And then Paul responds, I mean, uh, I mean that'd get aggra- that's tough. Hello, somebody. You know, I'm glad there's nobody on the stage right here. If y'all choose to throw things with me, uh, please let my glasses be off because I can't see it uh, until it's right there. And so let's let me preach on. Hopefully, y'all just going to let me preach on today. And so he smote him in the mouth. And Paul then said, well, God shall smite you, thou whited wall. He didn't know who it was that gave this commandment. And then they stood by and he said, revilest thou that God's high priest? And Paul then realized that the one that gave the commandment was the high priest. And look at Paul, whose mouth still smarts from the sting of the soldier who hit him on the mouth at the command of the high priest. He said, I knew not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And notice this. And then Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And he said, Because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. If you don't understand 
uh, the, the background of the belief system of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, then you don't understand that text. But it, Paul or the writer Luth explain, explains it a little bit carefully for us. So just in, or excuse me, just briefly. When he had so said, there arose a dissension among the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry. And the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and said, We don't find any evil in this man. If a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, don't let us fight against God. And there arose a great dissension. The chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to bring him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou also bear witness of me also at Rome. So let me set the context for you for a moment. Before uh, there's the, the, I'm going to give you some brief things that I'm going to share from my heart today in the context of religion and politics. So let's look at this really quickly. We've highlighted the chief captains, the centurions, and the soldiers, and they represent the authority of Rome, the great empire of the day that has annexed all of Judea. And there's not a Jewish king that sits upon the throne. The son of David does not sit upon the throne. But rather it is a, a Roman procurator or a governor or a tetriarch. And they are the authority of the day. Now they are in agreement with the chief priest. The chief priest has been appointed by Rome and is not necessarily of the, the, the actual lineage of the Aaronic priesthood. And that creates some dissension from within because there are those that are true to the Mosaic law are really grieved that it's a non-Aaronic priesthood that is, on, uh, that is, again, called the ruler of the people. So we have pagan Rome. We have the temple leaders, which are the chief priests and the scribes, and they're influenced by Rome, which is the Roman Empire. We have the Sadducees, which in that day were called the liberals. The Sadducees were called the liberals because they didn't believe in the spirit world. They believed in the book of Mo the five books of Moses, but they didn't believe in the, the prophets or the Psalms, the writings. They only believed in the five books of Moses. And because there's no account of resurrection in those five books, they didn't believe in a the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in spirits. The Pharisees would have been called the conservatives of that day because they believed in all the canon of the scriptures at that particular time. And they believed in the spirit world. They believed in demons and devils and angels. And they believed in the resurrection. They believed in the book of Daniel. There's a promise that one day God will raise up out of the dust those that have died. So they believed. So they were called the conservatives of Judaism. And caught in the midst is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, this sect of Christianity that arose within Judaism. But now we have conflict between even James, who is a apostle as well. He's called the apostle to the Jews. He stays in Jerusalem. He helped put Paul in this awkward place by asking him to be a part of the vow in the temple. And so what I want you to see today is when you look around the American climate and you see, you see Rome uh, in those days and you see, uh, you see conservatives and you see liberals and sometimes you see the church caught in the midst, are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? Maybe Solomon had it right when he said, there is nothing new 
under the sun. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so it is difficult to separate emotions that are related to such upheavals in the American political system as we see what took place this past week with the surprising election of Donald Trump and the subsequent fallout with the protesters that are and the protests that are taking place in our large metropolitan cities around the United States. Amen. These things are not done in a corner. Everybody knows about them, and we are talking about them. Now, let me just go ahead and address some things personally. I do not celebrate Donald Trump's victory today because I'm a sexist or a racist. I celebrated because I oppose the Democratic Party's support for abortion and the legalization of homosexual marriage. That's my conviction. I didn't say it was your conviction. I didn't ask it to be your conviction. I just said that's what I celebrate. But I would like to just very carefully comment on the accusations associated with the fact that if somebody supported Donald Trump, you must be a sexist or a racist. Unfortunately, I don't have the education to adequately address or respond to those accusations. But I can read other people, and I want to revert to a man by the name of Dr. Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Michael Brown was a part of the Pensacola outpouring. He's not an Assembly of God minister. He's actually a Jew. He's a converted Jew who believes in the gospel. He is conservative, but he responded in an article that he wrote, Here Comes the Charges of Racism and Sexism. And I believe it's a very articulate article, and I'm going to glean from it and perhaps even read it in its entirety today. Is that okay? Some of you have probably already read it, but I think it, I think it bears witness in here today. And so Dr. Brown writes on November the 10th, 2016, No sooner was it clear that Donald Trump would be our next president than the racist and the sexist charges began to fly. According to CNN's Van Jones, the vote for Trump was in part a white lash against President Obama's blackness. According to MSNBC's Al Sharpton, populist white supporters for Trump today is not Bernie Sanders' populism, but rather George Wallace' populism. According to ABC's Kooky or Koki Roberts, uh, lots of men voted for Trump because there is probably a strong sentiment about not having a woman president. Dr. Brown responds to those statements. In reality, millions of Americans were simply fed up with the direction of this country and not with the color of President Obama's skin. And these same frustrated Americans would have gladly voted for a strong conservative female against a weak liberal male. Now, again, these are his writings. Just imagine how they would have rallied around a Republican Margaret Thatcher had she been running against Democrat Bernie Sanders. That being said, I do not deny for a moment that racism and sexism exist in America. Nor do I deny that Donald Trump help deepen the divides among us we are a country of 340 million people and we have more than enough racist and sexist among us he makes this statement the best we can do is drop the race baiting gender baiting rhetoric and treat each other with grace and respect in the midst of our serious differences but percentage wise i suspect that there are just as many black races as white racists or Hispanic racist, etc. 
and there are just as many men hating feminists as there are women degrading male chauvinists. And let's not forget Hillary's divisiveness either. So he said, let's apply a little logic for just a moment. Are y'all okay? Y'all haven't seen... Let me... Let me move on. Think, think, let's look real quickly. Apply a little logic. But rather than look at this statistically with regard to the Trump-Hillary vote, um, he said, as David French has done when it comes to race and exit polls, have broken it down in greater detail, let's simply apply a little logic and see if there might be some double standards. Thinking back to the Hillary-Obama primary battle in 2008, so think back eight years ago, which at times was quite intense were Obama's voters sexist for rejecting Hillary? Conversely, were Hillary's voters racist for rejecting Obama? Of course, questions like this would never be asked since the voters in question were liberals and Democrats who by default cannot be guilty of racism or sexism, obviously. Interestingly, it was during the 2008 campaign that John McCain chose Sarah Palin as his running mate, yet the same angry white males who rejected Hillary in 2016 because of her gender embraced Sarah Palin despite hers. Or could it be that the issue was not gender, but rather policies? Let's go a little further. In my varied roles as a conservative leader, radio host, author, professor, minister, public speaker, I've interacted with thousands of voters who could not vote for Barack Obama or Hillary, and not one of them ever brought up the color of his skin, but perhaps two or three did bring up the fact that Hillary was a woman, and some of them believed that men should govern and lead. He asked the question, could it, not, could it be that the problem is not with racism and sexism of the right, but rather with the racist and sexist projections of the left? On the flip side, a large percentage of these people, including me, really wanted to have the privilege of voting for the first black president, but we could not do so in good conscience. At the same time, I can tell you that I know countless women and men who would never vote for Hillary because of her policies and character, not her gender. Unfortunately, because we are all conservatives, speaking to his base, who tend to vote Republican, we are, by default, sexist and racist, of course. And so, the article, and maybe for the sake of time, I, I probably should downsize it just a little bit. But he, he concludes real quickly. He concludes. But you can see where he's going in the defense of those accusations that have been made. He simply said this, I personally believe that both Hillary and Trump, this is the conclusion of his article, ran very divisive campaigns. And as one who voted for Trump and urged others not to vote for Hillary, I will gladly hold him accountable for his divisiveness. And certainly I hope to see a good amount of diversity in those he appoints to serve. But since Trump has now pledged to be the president of all Americans, and since Hillary and Obama have urged their supporters to give Trump a chance, the best we can do is drop the race-baiting, the gender-baiting rhetoric, and treat each other with grace and respect in the midst of our serious differences. This applies to the left at least as much as it applies to the right. I think it's a very well-written article, very eloquently spoken, and I encourage you to read it on your own in its entirety. 
And so I wanted to say this real quickly again. I did not celebrate Donald Trump's victory because I believe personally that I'm a sexist or a racist. I celebrated based upon my personal convictions that abortion, legal abortion is wrong and legalizing homosexual marriage is wrong, both in the eyes of God and what could be wrong according to our Constitution. And that was my personal convictions. Let me share with you my personal grievances. People look at me as a pastor. I try not to take my pulpit and make it political. If you'll stay with me, you might like the direction that I go as I conclude today. So don't give up on me too early. I grieve for our present plight in America because of at least the next, the following three things. Number one, the division in our nation, which you saw was almost equally divided in the populist vote. But that division extends to the church. Like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we, the body of Christ, are equally as divided. And that grieves me more than red states, blue states in my heart. I grieve. This is my personal convictions. You have to wait. You have your podium. You have your pulpit. You have your platform. This is mine. I grieve that the right to life and traditional marriage is not as esteemed or as valued by some as climate change or minimum wage increase. What is it? My question is, what is it going to take to unify the body of Christ in at least those two areas? Whether or not we can come together in the other areas, I don't understand why we can't somehow close that gap because of uh, that they are such biblically-based issues. Number two, I grieve over the lawlessness that abounds behind supposed peaceful protest. Lawlessness is not good for anyone, whether or not you agree or disagree with the outcome of any election. Protests like we have seen from Ferguson forward lead to violence and greater divisiveness. Let me just go on. Y'all not shout me down, but I'll just share it anyhow. Mob rule will eventually turn on itself. It will. Now, mob rule, and you better be careful, even if you're on the other side, if you're on the liberal agenda, you better be careful because one day that mob rule may turn on the church. You've got to be very careful. Number three, I grieve over a lack of patriotism in our country. I grieve over that in my heart as a veteran who stands before you with nine years of military service who honored those men and women who stood up among us today. Freedom comes as a very high cost. I'm telling you, if it weren't for that group of men and women who lay their lives on the line every day, every day to allow men and women to be able to exercise convictions, even when they disagree with our own at times, I'm telling you, another ideology would immediately take over if it were not for a strong military rejecting communism, rejecting Islamic extremism. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So today I pray for and I thank God for our men and women that help serve and that serve our nation today. And I'm telling you, this, this, when someone burns a flag to supposedly protest an election or to protest racism or whatever, they dishonor the faithful service of our nation's military. And I say this today from my convictions, I don't know if I represent yours, but shame on them. Shame on them for burning that American flag. Let me go farther. There was something else that I don't do. You got to be careful with this one. I don't over-spiritualize elections because not all voting is the will of God. And just because, listen very carefully, Germany voted in Hitler as its chancellor. 
And later, they voted away their own freedoms. So eight years ago, listen, think back for just a moment. The people that are protesting and crying today who can't go to their class in college, can't go to class because they're so heartbroken, that same group eight years ago and four years ago, they were dancing. Eight years ago and four years ago, the conservatives were saddened by the election of President Obama and the re-election of President Obama. But I don't remember protesting and lawlessness and rioting. That's just the truth. I don't remember it. Maybe it happened. I wasn't aware of it. But now that group is celebrating. So real quickly, let me say this and put you in a biblical context. A host of people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and they laid them in front of them and they sang a psalm. Hosanna to the son of David. And less than a week later, a host cried out. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas when he didn't meet their political expectations. So I personally don't over-spiritualize election. Not all voting is the will of God. It is my personal belief that conditions are going to worsen. Some say it's because of end-time prophecies, etc. I don't know if that's true, and I cannot disagree or affirm I only know this. I know as th this is a, a proverb, uh, a, 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 I suppose a contemporary proverb, as people are known to say, politics or our political system is downstream of the culture. So what you see happening in Washington, D.C., and corruption and division and confusion and all of that, that's a result of our culture being divisive and being... Uh, sinful many times let me just tell you real quick what i personally see i see that our culture continues listen to this to be more religiously diverse what i mean by that is historically it was primarily protestant christianity was the strong arm of faith in america and then alongside it came catholicism but as more and more immigrants and more and more and as some of the the other religions multiply by just re, just by reproduction faster than western christians do we're seeing more and more and that creates tension let's just be honest it does create when hinduism and islamic and various religions and whether that's good or bad i'm just telling you we're seeing that 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 arise and that often produces a, a division Division between religion and then also division between Christianity. But we're also seeing a greater number of non-believers than ever before in America who do not value the Christian heritage of America, who do not value the principles of faith that much of many of our laws and our history was built upon. It's the haunting words of John Adams that I, I'm on the last page of my notes. The haunting words of John Adams that were even prophetical that we need to mention today. John Adams in 1798 in a speech to the military said this. He said, we have no government that is armed with power that is capable of contending with human passions that are unbridled by morality and religion. Let me just turn that so you can understand it. He said, it doesn't matter how big an army, an army cannot overwhelm an entire people group who no longer have convictions, morals, or values. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. 
and it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Church family, we need a revival. We need a revival. Did y'all hear what I said? We need a revival. So this is our concern. The more godless and even to a degree liberal our schools and universities, universities become, the more liberal and godless our culture will become. Number seven, last point. What we need in America is a revival. From the White House to the poor house to the church house, we need a revival. What I mean by that is a great awakening. We need a return to a belief in the virtue of the Word of God. On a day that we invited a Gideon to stand in our pulpit and ask for contributions that the Word of God might go around the world, I stand here today and say we need a revival in this great nation of men and women that believe in the teachings of God's holy Word and will hide those truths in their heart. And know in the words of the apostle Peter when he said, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you his glory. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. John the beloved said, Our eyes have seen, our hands have handled of the word of life. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Thank God for his word. We thank God that Jesus was the living word. We thank God that the Bible is the written word of God. And it will change every part of your life and our society if we'll believe it, receive it, and believe it, and act there on it. Come on, somebody. Amen. And one closing statement from another of our founding, well, it's the same founding father, John Adams, said this. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member would regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Listen to what he said. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, which means self-control, to frugality, and to industry to justice, to kindness, and to love towards his fellow man, to piety, to love, and, towards, and reverence towards Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise that region would be. Oh, what our hope is, is that men and women will turn their hearts to God. As I close today, I want to return very quickly to a couple of passages from the man who wrote, who was caught in the middle of religion. Are y'all hearing me? And politics. The Sadducees were going to tear him this way. The Pharisees were going to tear him this way. And the Romans were going to rip him this way. He was caught in the middle. And sometimes so are we. Hello? Let me read to you what Paul said. It's in Romans 1st chapter 12, verse 17 and 18. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And let everybody say, Amen. Amen. Let's turn to that 13th chapter. Let's just read it. In dismissal, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, to the government in this context. He's simply saying there's no power but of God. 
that powers that be are ordained of God. I don't believe that that necessarily means that every election was dictated by the perfect will of God, but that the, the, the purpose of government is ordained of God. If you resist the power, you resist the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you will have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he will bear not the sword in vain. For he's the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. And for this cause, pay tribute also. Pay your taxes. I say it's okay to pay your taxes begrudgingly. Hello? I'm not saying you have to have a smile on your face. You might have a little sour disposition. But in the context of we know that it's a necessity. Right? It's a necessity for they are God's minister attending continually upon this very thing. So render to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom, honor to whom honor, a coin Jesus held in his hand, whose subscription is this? It's Caesar's. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God's. Are y'all with me? Owe no man anything but love one another. The man that was caught in the midst of religion and politics, the man that could have easily been killed that day by two separate entities, Judaism and Rome. That man writes and says, here's what you owe your fellow man. You owe him love. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying, church family? He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And you know what the law says. Don't commit adultery, steal, or bear false witness. But it's summarized in this. It's, it's, it's summed up. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So as Christians, even if there's a conflict of religion and politics out of our conviction to the word of God, we find a way to love. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And he writes then, in conclusion of this passage, as you stand, that if you know the time, it's high time to awaken out of sleep. Paul writes 2,000 years ago, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting. You might even say not in protesting. Oh, let's go a little further. And drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Isn't that amazing that a man that was almost torn apart by religion and by politics would write that the duty of the Christian is to love in the midst of it all. He has said this, final passage. I read it. Let's prepare to pray. I exhort then, Paul said, supplications and prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for you, for your family. That's my prayer for the people that are protesting on the streets. 
in our metropolitan cities, that they would just come to an awareness of the gift that God's given us and the freedoms that we have in America, and we would learn to respect one another, even in our deeply held disagreements. You may be rejoicing one moment because your candidate won, and the next time you might be saddened, but we still owe love one to another. Religion and politics has been a difficult thing for thousands of years and is going to continue to do so. We need to make sure that our convictions are steeped in the word of God and we're walking in love to those that are without. Let's pray. Father in heaven.